Would you join me in prayer today? God, you are a God of justice and mercy and grace. And you are present with us today. As we open your word, we read, would you open our hearts to you and what the spirit has to say to the church today? Amen. So I have a, a little video that's going to play quietly while I talk. So there is a YouTube genre called urban exploration. Maybe you're familiar with it. Um, most of the videos, I'll be honest, they involve trespassing into abandoned buildings. I am not recommending this. Please hear that clearly. It's often dangerous and it's usually illegal, but there is a channel called Decaying Midwest and they do a lot of filming in Gary. But I'll tell you the truth. I've done this kind of thing before, maybe not urban exploration and it was way before YouTube. I would call it rural exploration. So I, I lived in North Dakota in the country and the closest occupied house was a half mile away, but there were a number of abandoned farmhouses within a mile of our home and, and I am a person who takes walks and I am a very curious person and I did go into both farmhouses, the one to the east and the one to the southwest. This has nothing to do with that story. This is just another example, right? Um, the, in the southwest one, there weren't even stairs anymore to get in. I had to climb in. A friend and I went together and we went into the living room and there was a giant hole in the wooden floor and you could see the cellar and there wasn't much left in it. There were some beer cans. Um, other people had been there before and I did find some china. I found uh, these two pieces of this teacup and I, I glued them together and I've kept them all these years. These, these places are kind of freaky and also compelling, I think, because of all the questions we might have. What happened? Who drank from this? Why did they leave? What failed? I think these images of abandoned places can help us understand our book this summer. Zechariah is addressed to the exiles who have returned to their homeland. Now, some of them might be old enough to remember the glory of Jerusalem, but others have only heard about it from their parents or maybe their grandparents. I mean, imagine being forced to leave your community as a sort of refugee and taken 500 miles away, and then 50 years later, if you're still alive, you get to go back with some of the exiles, but everything's changed. Decaying Midwest, except it's Jerusalem. The buildings are falling in. And if you're old enough to remember what it looked like, it's devastating. The windows are boarded up, the grass is growing through the cracks of the sidewalk, trees have overtaken the laneway, but, but most of you aren't the same generation that left. You don't remember how it used to be. Maybe your grandparents told you about this awesome, beautiful city and temple, and you get there and it's like, meh, right? Like, like inheriting a giant family home that has fallen into disrepair, and it's your job to do all the work to build it up again. It is overwhelming and exhausting, and it's fundamentally a big, big disappointment that just goes on for the next 20 years, because that's how long it's been 
for the recipients of Zechariah. And it is still not great. Yeah, sure, some stuff has improved, but, but even in good times, we can say this, even in good times, we know that construction takes a long time. It's almost helpful to think of the recipients of this book as, as living in a sort of post-apocalyptic setting, like everything is make do. You have to learn how to forage. You have to make your sandals from tires. It's tough, and nothing is as it should be. That's the mood of those receiving this prophecy. And I want you to have that in your imagination as we read the text today. That was the mood. Now I'm going to talk about the, the structure of the text. So structurally, Zechariah can be divided into two major parts. Major parts. There are little in-between things. But first there's the dream visions. That's chapters 1 through 6. And then there's images of the future messianic kingdom. Chapter 7 doesn't really fit into either of these well. So first we're going to focus in our sermon series on the dream visions that Zechariah has. Now, these dream visions have a very distinct pattern. There's eight of them. They are paired up symmetrically in what is called a chiasm. That's your seminary word for today. It's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. I didn't make a slide for that. But a chiasm is a symmetrical pattern within a literary text. It's a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. So you can see the first four, are, you read left to right, right? One, two, three, four, and then we circle down clockwise. Five, six, seven, eight. And one and eight are paired. Two and seven, three and six, and four and five. And that's how we're going to preach through these images in the dream vision that Zechariah had, because these are the little sets. It's, it's a symmetrical order. I think one reason we see a lot of chiasms in the Old Testament is because for people who were not literate, it, it's easier to memorize a chiastic structure. It helps you remember. It helps with that. So as I read the text today, as I read the first and eighth vision, I want you to imagine you're hearing this as someone living in one of those abandoned homes. You've gone there to rebuild, and you are so discouraged. And not everybody is back yet. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word today. We'll start with Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7 through 17, and then we'll move to chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This happens two months later after the introduction Lars preached on last week. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. In the night, I saw a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the shadows, and behind him were red, sorrel, that means brown, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my lord? The angel who spoke with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, they are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Then they spoke to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have patrolled the earth and the whole earth remains at peace. Take note, this sounds like it's good news, right? But listen to the response. Then the angel of the Lord said, O oh, Lord of hosts, 
How long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which with, you ha- which, with which you have been angry these 70 years? Then the Lord replied with gracious and comforting words to the angel who spoke with me. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim this message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am very zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am extremely angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they made the disaster worse. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Proclaim further, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And then the second, the eighth vision that is the pair. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And again I looked up and saw four chariots. When you hear the words chariots in scripture, you have to think war machine, like tank. I saw four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled gray horses. Then I said to the angel who spoke with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four winds of heaven going out after presenting themselves before the Lord of the whole earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go toward the west country. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried out to me, see, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks for standing. That was a lot of verses. But I, I want to encourage you as we study this minor prophet together with several reminders. So first, in reading prophetic biblical literature, which is the genre that Zechariah is. Genre means type of literature. God is communicating through images that the prophet and the original recipients understand. They get it. They understand it. This is important to remember. Second, the prophets aren't saying anything new. They are repeating, they're emphasizing, and they're re-emphasizing in a new way things that God has already said in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. There is often literary or artistic variation, but the major points are the same. That's important, too. And and prophecy, as we heard, uses a lot of imagery. We'll hear horses and chariots and, I think the weirdest one, a woman in a basket. Come back for that one. A flying scroll, a measuring line. Do not be intimidated by the strangeness of these images. They are just as strange to you as this image might be to someone 500 years from now. Okay? Right? We don't look at this and say, oh, one day 
a giant donkey and a giant elephant are going to sit on a Greek-style building and crush it. We know what this means. I don't even have to explain it to you. Okay, so let's look at the symbolism in this so we can understand what the prophet is saying. So this is what's going on in the first vision. There is a man on a red horse sitting outside Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley. Symbolically, God has returned to the city but has not yet entered because the temple has not yet been completed. And, and there are horses waiting behind this man with a report after having ridden around the world and seen what's going on. Now, we're going to notice that the horses are all different colors. I don't think that there is much meaning in those colors, but if you were painting a picture with a number of horses in them, you might make the horses different colors, right? That helps make it more vivid. To the ancient hearers of this prophecy, though, the sight of passing horsemen, no matter their color, reminds subject people of who rules the world, right? You see the horses, you know you're being watched. It's sort of like a flag or a sign accompanied by a security camera today. Report any suspicious activity to the police. Horsemen remind people that they are being watched. But the mounted horsemen in this vision speak of another king and a different kingdom. It's God's eyes that are on the earth. It is God who is watching. And these watchers bring a report of peace. They say, the whole earth remains at peace. And we could be like, that sounds like good news. Close the book, it's over now. But it's actually not. The angel of the Lord, who is the same as the, the man on the horse, he does not think that this is good news. He's not like, great, I'm done here, onward. No. Instead, he has a prayer of supplication. He says, oh, Lord of hosts. First of all, Lord of hosts shows up a lot in the Old Testament, especially the prophets. When you read Lord of hosts, you have to substitute God of the angel armies. This is a military reference, right? This has to do with God's power over the earth. Oh, Lord, oh, God of the angel armies, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been angry these 70 years? He's, he's looking back at Jerusalem and Judah and seeing the decay. He's seeing the loss. He's recognizing that there are still people who belong there who are living 500 miles away. In other words, there's peace in the world, but not in Jerusalem and the city of Judah. He's saying, God, when will you make it right? It's been almost 70 years. When can we return? When can we all return? When will you bring peace? When will you bring justice? These, these places all around, they have peace reports, but what about us? Look at what's going on right in front of your eyes. But the key to this passage is that God does see. God sees what's going on, and God replies. God speaks about his great concern for Jerusalem. God has compassion on them. He graciously says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. 
God sees the injustice. Now the exile, the being cast out of their homeland, was the people of Israel's consequence. It was their discipline from God, as God had said before it happened, for neglecting the law of God and, and practicing idolatry. And God uses other nations, the Assyrians at first, to inflict the consequence on his people. But here we see that God says they went too far. They went too far with the punishment. They were out of control. They were too violent, and the Assyrians were very violent. <laughs> they were too much. And God is waiting and ready to re-enter. He is compassionate and gracious, and he's jealous. I want to I pause for a moment on that word, because I think sometimes that word might seem odd to us compared with, uh, together with compassionate and gracious, because in our world today, jealousy can have a bad name. Do you agree with that? Uh, maybe people might think of a, a bad husband who is jealous of his wife and he won't let her ever go out or get a new dress and he tries to control her. That is not the kind of jealousy God is talking about in this text. God's jealousy is rooted in God's love, not God's desire to control. It is like the kind of love that a devoted and honorable husband has for his wife. I mean, we have to remember that there is a good kind of jealousy, and God has it. In our world today, there's a growing acceptance of polyamory and plural marriage in which, like, love has no limits, and jealousy is considered a sin. But that is not love. Human beings flourish in faithful, monogamous marriages that mirror God's faithfulness to his people. And God's jealousy provides security and knowing that we are longed for and cared for and desired. Being longed for and chosen and protected by our lovingly jealous God means that we are irreplaceable. That's what God's jealousy means. J.I. Packer explains God's jealousy as a zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. And within this jealous love, this zealous love, God has returned. He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with compassion. My house shall be built in it. A measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. My cities again shall overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. In other words, it's going to get better, folks. God's presence will return God will oversee the rebuilding. A measuring line shall be stretched. The cities will again be rebuilt. It won't be like the decaying Midwest YouTube channel anymore. You have another chance. God is waiting outside the door, even though the door is falling off its hinges. He's chosen you. Are you ready? God is. That's the first vision. Now let's go to the companion vision. Now, if you're, if you're following along in your Bible, it's chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. I'm going to go through it just again. And again, I looked up and saw four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled gray horses. So first we see the vision is described. You could use this and draw a picture of it if you like 
to draw. There, there's a valley between two mountains, mountains of bronze, so they're shiny and golden and reflective. And, and from this cleft, this valley, these four war machines are pulled out by different colors of horses. The mountains represent the dwelling place of God. They're bronze like the sun. And these powerful war machines, this is the Lord of hosts, remember, they are moving out from the presence of the divine. So Zechariah looks at it, and then he asks what it means, and he, and he gets an explanation beginning in verse 5. These are the four winds of heaven going out. After presenting themselves before the Lord of the whole earth, the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go toward the west country, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the steeds came out, they were impatient to get off and patrol the earth, and he said, go patrol the earth, and so they patrolled the earth. And he cried out to me, see, those who go toward the north country, I have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now, if you're an observant reader, maybe you noticed there are only three points of the compass that the horses go to. But many biblical scholars believe that one of these compass points was sort of lost in transmission. We could assume the red ones are going east. But that's not the main point. The main point is that these war machines of God, symbols of God's judgment, are active throughout the world. God is called the Lord of the whole earth here. He is not just the God of Israel. He is sovereign over the entire globe. But in this text, it's the land of the north that is emphasized. See, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. The north country is the region where Assyria was. These are the enemies, and this is where the exiles who have not yet returned still live. Now, Persia at this point has already overtaken the Assyrian Empire. The consequences mentioned in the first vision have already happened in some ways, but God's judgment is still coming, and God is going to rest in the places where his judgment is needed. But this isn't just a message of judgment to the exiles in the north. This is good news. Soon they can go home. The spirit of God is coming. This is a vision of God's sovereignty over the whole world and his judgment on perpetrators of violence and oppression as well as his impending rescue for the rest of the people living in exile. God is God of the whole earth. And even when you're exiled, even when you've gone back and you see the destruction, you can know that God is still God. He is still active. He has not left the building, and his judgment and his rescue are coming. This is good news to the exiles, but it is also good news for us. Because we, too, recognize injustice all around us. There are places and situations where it certainly does seem like God has left. People and places that are broken by no fault of their own. A little bit like this China, right? I don't even have the pieces to repair the whole thing. M maybe you're concerned about certain areas of, of injustice. Maybe the injustice of the war in Ukraine, like this apartment building outside Kharkiv. I mean, we could, I could get a whiteboard out and we could make a giant list right now of injustice throughout the world. Human trafficking refugees living in camps throughout the world, 
I was speaking to some Swedish missionaries recently, and they have refugees from Syria in their church, and even though the Swedish government said that they would be able to get citizenship, they are having a horrible time. It's unjust. Human creation devastation. Sexual abuse of women and children. The caste system. Unjust imprisonment. Maybe you have an area of injustice that you care about deeply and through time or resources you try to help make change. And that's good. Each of us have deep convictions, I hope and pray, about certain injustices in the world. And, and we feel proper anger in response to it that want, helps us want to act. And part of the call of Christ, part of biblical living, is to seek and work toward justice. And we do this as a, as a church, as a denomination, and as our local congregation. We do this in our partnerships with new community outreach, the Jesus People USA. We do this through World Relief's Refugee Resettlement Program and our Shokta partnership with Hindustani Covenant Church in India. And like I said, each of us can also seek justice in our own lives, helping lead our workplaces toward just practices, fair wages, consideration of how our business choices affect local neighborhoods and the environment. I mean, there's many ways to go about this. I don't want to be prescriptive in saying, this is how you need to live out justice today. Working as a lawyer or a judge toward fair and just society. In all our vocations, there's opportunity toward working toward biblical justice. However, even as we work toward biblical justice, there might come times where you realize that all human attempts for justice do not ultimately bring true justice. It's a bit like the story told by Ardian Arafaj. There was a boy whose father would hammer a nail into a piece of wood every time the boy did something wrong, and he did a lot of things wrong. One day, the boy asked why, and when it was explained, the boy decided he would behave better, and so every time he did something good, his father would remove a nail from the board. And eventually, all the nails came out. But the holes remained. And in our own seeking of justice, there is a sense that the holes always remain. Even if Vladimir Putin is tried and found guilty for war crimes, that doesn't undo this damage. It doesn't bring back children from the dead. If a golden-hearted rogue hacker exposes pedophiles so that they go to prison to the extent the law allows, it does not undo the damage they have done. Our work toward biblical justice, though right and part of our call, it is not sufficient on its own. It doesn't fix the whole problem. We need cosmic justice. We need that bronze mountain and those chariots. But cosmic justice can only come from God. And we see in these passages, God present and active. The injustice of the world does not surprise God. He sees it, and he will act. And for us Christians, cosmic just justice wasn't the return of the exiles or the fall of Assyria to Persia, though those things were good and, and just and providential. And cosmic justice in the 20th century, it wasn't the trials of Nuremberg or the conviction of Ted Bundy. Cosmic justice is always centered on the cross of Christ, in which 
all the injustices of the world die with Christ and through Christ, all things, and we sang about this earlier, will ultimately be renewed and restored. This begins with the resurrection and it is finally complete when Jesus comes again. Today we are surrounded with injustice, with war, urban decay, falling down farmhouses. But this isn't the end of the story. We can have hope in the one who sees the injustice and the one who acts. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the whole earth, the Lord of the angel armies. Often in our sermons here, we end with some kind of specific uh, invitation or instruction. And a new way to pray, maybe, or a challenge to use your phone less. We've been going to that one a lot. And these things are good, and I want you to do them. But today, the invitation is quite simple. In your life, in your vocation, in your church involvement, every day, in your everyday living, strive for justice. But do not be overwhelmed by the injustice. Remember that God will make it right in the end. God will rebuild. He will refill the holes on that piece of wood. He'll find the broken pieces and mend them together. And he does this because of his character, his jealous, loving, and just character. So in closing, I invite you to stand and pray a prayer with me. It's actually from our hymnal. If you want to follow along in the hymnal, it will also be on the screen, number 928. I invite you to read together the text that's in bold. Let us pray. We'll begin together. O oh God, sovereign of the universe, without you, nothing is true. Nothing is just. In your word, you reveal the way of love. By your spirit, you make it possible. From greed and selfishness, from a society in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, compassionate God, deliver us. From racial prejudice and religious intolerance, from a society which makes its weakest and most recent members into scapegoats, compassionate God, deliver us. From indifference to the needs of other countries, from the delusion that you love any other nation less than you love us. Compassionate God, deliver us from self-indulgence and indifference, from a society in which fidelity and responsibility have little place. Compassionate God, deliver us. Author of life, give us hearts set on the coming of your reign. Give us wise, just, and humble leaders Give all who live in this land a will to live in peace through Jesus Christ, the one who is above all powers and dominions. Amen. Let's remain standing for our closing hymn.